Well, we'll turn again tonight to Romans in chapter 6 and verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. An old friend of mine is uh, Bill. He's a pastor in uh, Liverpool. Some of you know him. He's got a very thriving church there. And often when I've heard him preach, then he begins his sermon by describing a certain type of man or woman, and he gives them a name. And then he analyzes what they say, their attitudes and uh, their behavior, and he shows what's wrong with them and how it can be put right. It's uh, an engaging way of preaching. It draws the congregation then into the message, so you can see then through these people uh, uh, to the word of God and the way it answers and helps such people as that. So I'm going to do that tonight. We'll call him Dave, but it doesn't matter. He's been a professing Christian for three or four years. Although he comes to church, he's not very faithful. And he doesn't seem very interested in growing in his walk with Christ. In fact, as you think about Dave and as you observe his life, it seems to you that he's involved in activities that are not helpful, that will drag him down as a Christian. When you mention this fact to him, he says, well, I know I'm going to heaven. Why not living, live it up until I get there? What do you say to him? And then let's call her Susan. She's been married, I believe, about 15 years. She's a professing Christian, just about that long She's one of your best friends. And you just discovered that she's getting involved in a romantic relationship with another man. And when you confront her, she says, well, I know it's wrong. You don't have to tell me that. I know it's a sin, but I know God understands. And I know he'll forgive me. What do you, what do you say to her? And then we'll call him Jack. He's been a professing Christian a long time in church for years, but by his own admission, he's never grown as a Christian at all. He's still wearing nappies. And spiritually, he's a baby Christian. He says to you, look, I know I'm going to heaven. And that's the only thing that matters to me. I don't mind taking a back seat in, in heaven and let others of you sit at the front. Um, just as long as I make it there. That's all I care about. The rest of it doesn't matter. What do you say to him? 
What we're asking then is this question, whether it makes any difference how we Christians live. Those people I've told you about are not extraordinary. They're common people, common church attenders, with common voices and common thoughts, and we hear them a lot. Um, If we're real about it, we'll acknowledge that um, some of us have thought and excused ourselves in the same way. I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to enjoy my life in this world. It's a short life. I know it's wrong. God will forgive me. I'll take a back seat in heaven, so uh, it doesn't matter. What do you say to them? What does God say to them? Does the Bible shed any light on uh, this pastoral problem at all? The question really is this. Now that I have peace with God, does it make any difference how I live? Yes or no? What does God have to say about this? And the answer, of course, is yes, it does matter. And God does have a great deal to say about it. And Romans 6 is the central passage in the Bible that deals with Jack and Susan and Dave. And the great question is, uh, now that I'm saved, does it matter how I live? Paul is uh, raising this question at the beginning of the second section of Romans chapter 6. And he's raised it almost an identical question at the beginning of the first section. Verse 1 of chapter 6. And he's answered that question already in one way in verses 2 through 14. And the question here in verse 15, then, he's going to answer in the rest of this chapter. The first question, you see, was, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And the second question is, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? So the first, uh, the first question is more on continually sinning and continually getting forgiveness. And uh, doesn't that then magnify the wonderful grace of God that we can go on in life sinning and sinning every day and God can go on forgiving and forgiving us? We're giving the grace of God plenty of scope. That's the first question and the answer in the first section that he gives that we've seen. And the question before us tonight then, in the second section, there's a nice paragraph and a heading in the NIV before you, you can see that. Does living under grace give me freedom to sin? In all the moment-by-moment decisions, uh, I'll be making them this week, you'll be making them. Is it okay for me to give in to my feelings and to retaliate? And blow my top. And take the forbidden fruit. Because I can always fall back on the mercy of God. Is it okay for me to rubbish another Christian? Because I'm covered with the blood of Christ. Is it okay for me to go on the web and visit the pornography sites there? Because God has forgiven all my sins. My past sins, my present sins, and my future sins. Is it okay for me to borrow something without permission? 
Because who is a pardoning God like my God? So the whole of this chapter is probing me about this subject of my abusing the free mercy, the gift of salvation that God has given to me. Is it all right for me to sin and then say to myself, well, it's, it's only a small sin? Can I treat sin lightly? I'm going to heaven. More happy than me are the angels in heaven, but they're not more secure than I am and my salvation, top lady tells me. The law of God no longer condemns me. It's condemned my saviour in my place. And so, for me now, there's no condemnation. I'm under the grace of God forever and forever. I'm under his determination. I'm caught up in the determinate purpose of God to save me and glorify me and take me to a new heavens and a new earth. And so the question, the um, million pound question is, has God given me a license to sin? Can I be a Christian crook? Can I be a born-again pornographer? Can I be a, a religious burglar? Can I be an evangelical bank robber? Can I be a Calvinistic drug dealer? Can I be a fundamentalist pole dancer? Can I be a, an adulterous church member? Can I receive mercy from God and a passport to glory and God working all things together for my good and having the Holy Spirit in my heart and God providing all my needs and nothing separating me from the love of God and yet live under the Dominion of cruel and hurtful and destructive and selfish desires and actions. Doesn't seem right, does it? The Lord Jesus was lashed and crucified. He became the Lamb of God. He hung on the cross in the darkness under the anathema of God. Men mocked him while he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're, they're doing. That was the price he paid for my redemption, to save me from my sin. Did Jesus pay that price for me so that from now on I could do whatever took my fancy? Did he suffer under the condemnation of the law of God that I'd broken, that I could go on then breaking the law of God whenever it took me, without any punishment for the rest of my life. Is that the freedom for which God made me free? So let's come to the first section then. I want to ask what does Paul mean when he says we're not under law but under grace. You notice it's twice um, in, in our text in verse 15 and it's there in verse 14. We're not under law but under grace so obviously it's important maybe it was a slogan and the antinomian party the party that was saying this sort of thing it was their slogan and they returned to it again and again and they would excuse themselves and they'd say yeah but we're not under law are we we're not under law we're under grace aren't we so let's clear away some confusion about that phrase uh, which is here in 
in our text in the opening verse of it. Firstly, it doesn't mean we're not under law but under grace. It doesn't mean there are no rules. It doesn't mean that. A lot of people, when they read we are under grace, they think that rules cramp their style. They say it's the Pharisees that had the rules, but the great thing about Jesus was he got rid of all the rules. No more rules. The idea that rules are the problem is one of the dumbest ideas of all time. Does the highway code make driving more dangerous or less dangerous? Well, the rules of the road make driving less dangerous. Do the rules of a game spoil the game? No, they make the game. So it is here when Paul is saying we're not under law but under grace. He doesn't mean that no rules exist now for a Christian. There was anarchy in Baltimore and we were showing it on the television news last week. Um, a man was killed while he was in police custody and so a mob rioted. They set fire to cars and they looted Stores, they smashed the windows and got in and helped themselves to anything they wanted and they threw rocks at the police. Who'd go on to a street where there were no rules, where anarchy reigned? Who'd leave their house and risk meeting a lawless mob like that? Being under the law doesn't mean, oh, you're under the terrible bondage of submitting to order in your family and in your school and in your church and in your community. Now, thank heavens, Jesus has got rid of all these rules. There are no rules now. Being under grace doesn't mean that there are no longer any rules and secondly, it doesn't mean that in the Old Testament you had to obey the rules, but in the New Testament you don't have to, but you do anyway because you want to. That's not what Paul is saying. I've met Christians who, who believe that. They say, we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore. Actually, we, we do keep them, but it's because we want to. But we don't have to. I've heard of people saying, we don't really have to obey the Sermon on the Mount. That is for life in the kingdom dispensation to come in the millennium after the secret rapture. And for that uh, thousand years, they keep, they keep the, the laws of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, today, Christians might choose to keep the Ten Commandments because they want to, but they don't have to. If you haven't heard that, you'll hear it one day. And that's not what Paul is positing here. If God's commands are to show us that we love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we love the real God, the holy God, the righteous God, the lovely God, the perfect God,
and that we love our neighbors as ourselves because our neighbors are made in the image of God, then the Ten Commandments are not a mere option. You can take them if you want to. We don't have to, but, but, but we choose to. The point of freedom for the Christian is not that godliness becomes optional. Shall I become godly or not? And, and we choose to live like that when we feel like it. I'll be a super Christian, and so I'll, I'll choose to live in that way. That is not the freedom that Paul is talking about. That is, again, a wrong, a sinful response. And thirdly, it doesn't mean we're cluttering, removing some of the clutter then that uh, is attached to this phrase, we're not under, uh, under law but under grace. It doesn't mean that, unlike the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are nowhere found in the New Testament. That, again, is a sort of slogan. So some people say, now we have Christian freedom. In the Old Testament, oh, you had the law, you had the Ten Commandments. But in the New Testament, the Ten Commandments are not repeated. Well, have you looked? Are you a student of the New Testament to make a a confident claim like that? How did Jesus deal with a rich young ruler, a healthy fellow who came running to him one day and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know the commandments? Jesus went through the Ten Commandments with him. Jesus spoke to his mind, spoke to his conscience about the law of God. And the man said, oh yeah, I've kept all, all those things from my youth up. And so Jesus tested him with the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Okay? Sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have everlasting life. And the man groaned. And went away sad because, oh, he loved all his possessions, his fields and his farms and his fine house and his horses and his chariots and all that he had. Jesus used the law of God to show a man his heart, to show a man what was his God that he was serving. Or again, when Paul writes later on in this letter to the Romans and, and tells them um, how they're to live. You know, from chapter 12 onwards, he's dealing with Christian conduct. Orthopraxis follows orthodoxy. 1 to 11 is all about the orthodox Christian truth. And then from 12 onwards, it's presenting our bodies as sacrifices to God and how we are to live. And what does he say? Chapter 13 and verse 8 and 9 and 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Love is law's eyes. Without love, law is blind. Well, now, these verses from the New Testament seem to me to hold a lot like the moral law of the Old Testament. And Jeremiah in the Old Testament said that the mark of a person who would be the ultimate new covenant Christian would be this, that the law of God would be engraved, written on his heart. What law? God's moral law. Because the law reflects the character of our God. Our God is holy and spotless and blameless and perfect and righteous. That's what God's like. And he wants us to be moral and blameless and spotless and righteous men and women. That's how we are the light of the world. That's how we are salt in a decaying society. Now, of course, the ceremonial law has been abrogated because all the tabernacle and the sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And the civil laws were given when Israel was a theonomy, when there was a part of this world. Um, From Dan to Beersheba, um, a land about the size of Wales, but stretched out like a banana. And uh, that... Land then was uh, for 2,000 years from the promise made to Israel, to, its, to Abram to give them that land, made about 2,000 BC, and then about the year 1400 BC they, they set off and they moved into that land. And there was civil legislation about the design of houses and uh, that they were to dig holes when they went to the toilet and they were to look after things. That was for a theonomy. They were judges because there was a theonomy. There were kings and tribes because it was a theonomous law and all that's been fulfilled now in the new covenant. It's, It's different. But the moral law, well, that was kept inside the ark, inside the Holy of Holies, where a man could enter into that holy place just once a year. It was special. And the freedom that we have as Christians is not to be liberated from the character of our God, but that we are called to be like him. And reflect his glory in in this world. In what kind of fathers we are. What kind of mothers. What kind of children. What kind of church members. What sort of neighbors we are. We deal with our enemies. So if all those things are not what Paul means. When Paul says we're not under the law. But we're under grace. What does he mean? Well some of you might think. Well he, he means Deliverance from the condemnation of the law. And that's true. We are delivered from the condemnation of the law. But that's not what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealt with that. He's dealt with that at length from really the fifth chapter onwards. And he'll talk about it again. But now he's not talking about forgiveness. And our acceptance and freedom from condemnation. He's he's dealt with that. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's there at the beginning of the fifth chapter. He's talking here in this sixth chapter about us not being the pawns of sin. And sin moving us around. And foods, sin just telling us, don't go to that place because it's a church and you'll hear the gospel. We're no longer under this tyrannical master sin. We're not under the law. The condemning law. But we're under grace. In the sense that we are free from the dominion of sin. And now we freely serve the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are supported daily by the power of grace. To become more and more Christ-like. Morality and uh, good families and godliness. And, and being wise members of society, it all comes from the energizing, actuating work of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives. You see, the problem is not rules. The problem is not obligation to rules. The problem is not even the Old Testament moral law. The problem is sin. And the grievous power of sin's dominion over men's lives. God's law relentlessly opposes sin. God's law continually condemns sin. All the holiness of God, all the character of God is focused. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the strength of, of sin is the law of God. So, you see, the law of God doesn't say, don't blow dandelion seeds. Don't do that. The law of God doesn't talk about that. God's law doesn't say, don't wear red ties. <laughs> that would be trivia. That's not a strong law, is it? Those Prohibitions would be very weak laws to condemn harmless activities and behavior in that way. But God's law says, don't you worship idols. You honor your father. You honor your mother. God's law says. There are strong commands that they forbid obvious sins. Okay, here's a little old lady and she lives in a corner house. And uh, the boys on the street, they, they play football and they kick against the, the, the ball, against her wall. And at times she comes out and she says, oh boys, don't play ball against my wall all the time. The thudding of that, of that ball, it, it, it just uh, drives me crazy. And that's all she can say. She can protest. She can appeal to their better nature. But she has no power to stop them and she's afraid of them. And she raises a weak complaint. But when you break one of the Ten Commandments, when you kill, when you lie, when you commit adultery, when you take the Lord's name in vain, you are falling under the condemnation 
of Almighty God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God as a sinner. The soul that sinneth shall surely die, says God. And die he will. He'll die firstly. There's physical death, and that's unavoidable for us. And then there is what the book of Revelation calls the second death. The strength of sin is its condemnation. And behind its condemnation then, there's not a little old lady saying, oh, please don't do that, there's the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our creator, our sustainer. But as a believer, God has liberated you. He has delivered you from the powerful condemnation of sin. You are not under the law's punishment. You live under the reign of the grace of the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We live like that when the, the power of the Holy Spirit becomes the dynamic in our lives, the, the motivating energy the sustaining force in our lives that, uh, that keeps us on the narrow path and keeps us saying this one thing I do. Oh, how love I thy law. It's my meditation day and night. Thy law is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So freedom from the condemnation of the law doesn't mean freedom from God. You live, you move, you have your being in God. God determines, uh, you'll come here tonight and you'll hear about sin and deliverance from it and why holiness is important. And God has arranged for you to come here and for me to preach this message to you. So at this moment, God is underlining these things and making this book come alive and speaking to your mind and to your conscience about your behavior. Christ has freed you from having to obey sin. When sin says, stay home, watch TV, do a bit more work, study, go and see your friends, call in the pub on a Sunday night. and You you haven't done what sin has told you to do because grace has triumphed in your life and he's brought you here. Second thing I want you to see is that No person is free. Everyone serves something or other. No person is free. Not one person. And so Paul then asks this question. We are in verse 16 now. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, and that leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So, um, Paul is inviting us, come with me now. Come, okay, come with me. Come with me to a slave market, okay? In your minds now, you're in a slave market. And you go to one of the slaves there that's looking around, and you say to him, uh, who's your master? And he gives you the name of a person. Is he telling the truth? Is he really a slave to this man or not? And then into the slave 
Mark becomes a, a well-dressed, obviously affluent man. And he just goes like this. And the man comes to him straight away. He says... And he does immediately what his master has told him. And you know he's his master. Because he does what his master tells him. You can always tell to whom a man is devoted, to whom a man belongs, by the way he acts. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves, verse 16, to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. And then Paul goes on to say there are two masters. And they demand two very different kinds of service. And you get two sorts of rewards. And the first master is mentioned in verse 16, and he's called sin. And in verses 18 and 20 and 22, he's called sin, sin, sin. And in verse 19, he's given another name, and it's impurity. You see that. And then there's a second master, and he has another name. He is called, in verses 17 to 20, righteousness. And he is called, in verses 22 to 23, God. So, sin and impurity, God and righteousness. They are the names, the two names of these two masters. And they want very different things from their slaves. Very different things. If sin and impurity is your master, then you will do things that are consistent with this man's nature and requirements. You will sin and you will be impure. He demands that you do impure actions. And when you've done them, you will go on, verse 19, to ever-increasing wickedness. He demands that you do things you are now ashamed of doing. Verse 21. That's, if you are serving sin and impurity, that's going to be what happens to you. But the other master's demands are completely different. God, the God of righteousness. And he ensures that his servants do his revealed will in the form of teaching. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? The, the form is just that um, it's not formless. There's structure to the teaching. Romans 1 and its development, 2, 3, 4, and how it goes on. And then the change of tone in chapter 12. And the form of teaching. And you look at it and you see that you're saved by grace and faith. And then the grace and faith that saves you helps you to live this kind of life. It's, there's a form of teaching. And those who have the master who is righteousness, the master who is God, they, they live like that. That's how they choose to live. A holy life. And so here are two very different kinds of life. Here, here's, a, here's a, let me use this analogy, here's a man, he's a, a surgeon, he's an anesthetist, and he works in a, in a sterile atmosphere. He washes his hands, and he has a mask on, and he has a, a, a green cap on his head, and there's a fan, an extractor fan, and here's the, uh, 
the, the atmosphere in the operating theater that's as free from any contamination as it possibly can be. That's one man. There's another man. Uh, he he goes round. He comes to us on Tuesdays. And he picks up all the refuse that we put out. And he walks behind the lorry and he's got his uh, orange coat on so that people can see him. And he's picking up rubbish all the time and he's throwing it. Two very different jobs, vocations. You've been delivered from living with a refuse. You've been brought into a new life where you you want to be free from sin. You want to present your body as a living sacrifice to God. And the two masters, they pay different wages. Sin and unholiness pay death. You see that in verse 16? You see it in verse 21? You see it in verse 23? Three times that stark monosyllable that the Bible never lets us get away from. This brief life that shoots by and ends in death for every one of us. The wages of sin is death. Um, Not just physical death then, but after it, alienation from God. Everlasting judgment. But the other master, he gives life. Eternal life. Verse 22, verse 23. Life he gives. Everyone, everyone is serving some master or other. Everybody, everybody here. There's a line through this congregation and there are some in this congregation and they're serving God. They're serving righteousness, and there are others. And you're serving unbelief. And you're serving sin. Ray Steadman, a preacher, I read his sermons and use them. Um, He's uh, in the Peninsula Church in California. And uh, he was uh, a young fella in the 1960s, flower power time in California, Uh, The Beatles singing, All You Need Is Love. And then there was this work done amongst the Jesus people there. Uh, People were saved. Their lives were changed. And he was walking down the street in Los Angeles at that time. And a guy came walking towards him who had a billboard on his front and on his back. And on the front of this big billboard in big letters, there was this phrase, I'm a slave for Christ. I am a slave for Christ. And he was walking. Real strange fellow. And he came up to him and he walked past him. And then Ray Stedmond uh, looked around. Uh, and on the back, the billboard on the back of this man asked, Whose slave are you? I'm a slave for Christ. Whose slave are you? And that's what Paul is saying here in this chapter, in the verses that are before us. Every day we face a fork in the road. 
every day. There's a choice that we've got to make. The fork may be in, uh, in our kitchen, maybe in our bedroom. Maybe as we're face, facing the computer. Maybe as we're watching television or reading some magazine. We are either going to go towards sin or we're going to go towards God. And if we choose to go towards sin, we're a slave of sin. And if you go towards God, you're a servant of God, aren't you? And you're a servant of righteousness. If you say no to sin, no, I'm not going to do that. I've hurt myself doing that too much. And one day you're going to be in a room. And there are just two doors, two exits from that room. And on the one door, the word hell is written. And on the other door, the word heaven is written. And there's no third exit. There's not a window you can get out through. And there's not the option of the undecided. It doesn't exist. Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. And uh, you either go towards sin or you go to God. And you say, well, I'm undecided. I want one foot in sin and one foot in righteousness. You, You can't do that. There's no dual citizenship in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You've got to come out. You've got to be in the one or in the other. You've got to cross the border. Like Ruth left Midian and went to Israel. Thy people shall be my people and thy God shall be my God. And that's what you've got to say. So whose slave are you? Say I stood there at the door tonight and didn't let any of you go down any other way downstairs afterwards. I shook your hand at the door and I said to you, one by one, whose slave are you? It would be a bit embarrassing. But it's the question that Paul takes desperately seriously here. I'm a slave for Christ, he says. Would you say that? I serve Jesus Christ. Poorly, inadequately. But he's my Lord and he's my master. And I'm serving him all my life. That's a Christian. Then. And that's what you've got to deal with. That's the issue that's before you tonight and tomorrow night and every night and every day from now until you breathe your last. Not enough to go to church and go through religious rigmarole and sing some lovely hymns and some new hymns for you. It's a charade. If Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday you're not living a Christian life. Whose slave are you? Well, you don't answer it by sitting here on a Sunday. You answer it by how you live from Monday to Saturday. And the issue that's facing us all is which of these masters is your master? Is it the master that takes us to eternal life or the one that will be with us in eternal death? Top Lady sings a great hymn 
when he writes Rock of Ages, probably the greatest of all hymns. It'd be up there in the top five, wouldn't it? The Rock of Ages that's cleft for me. And do you remember what he says? Be of sin, the double cure. Not just, he doesn't want to be just cured from the guilt and the condemnation. He doesn't want that. Not that only. He wants that, but not that only. Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. I want to be delivered from the control from giving in so weakly what sin tells me to do, for yielding to temptation again and again. I want to be delivered from that, from the power of sin over me. That must be a wonderful hymn. I'll tell you of another wonderful hymn too. Love divine, all love's excelling. All right, that's a great hymn of Wesley. Love divine, all love's excelling. And you know what Wesley sings in that hymn? Take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end be of, of all my life. Take away the love of sinning. He doesn't just say take away the condemnation of sin. That's salvation. But take away my love for sin. Take, take it away. Wash it. Remove it from my life. Finally, he speaks here in, this, in the last verses of this text. He, he speaks about the achievements, what grace does for us. And uh, God's grace is what liberates us. And true liberation is found in obedience. It's not found in doing whatever I please. But um, liberty, liberty, freedom comes in finding what God's will is and then doing it. That's, that's where I'm free, free at last. So verse 17, but thanks be to God. You've been set free from sin and you've become slaves to righteousness. Verse 18, thanks be to God. Okay, just three points to close. Firstly, Paul is thanking God that these people became Christians. He's thanking God for it. Why am I emphasizing that? What's my point? Well, you see, we live in a, a, a time in the churches of autosoteriology, self-salvation. That we're the ones who save ourselves. You hear evangelists, you hear preachers saying, well, now God's hands are tied. And he's helpless and God can do no more. And now it's up to you. He says, and heaven is yours to take, yours alone. And so then, if we did it, if we saw the issues, if we made the choice, if we made the decision with God looking on and God spectating and God not able to do those things for us, then we're going to come to people who say, I want to be baptized. And say, oh, thank you for wanting to be baptized. 
Thank you for becoming a Christian. Thank you for making this choice. Thank you for asking Jesus Christ into your heart and life. Thank you for believing the Bible. Thank you for choosing heaven. And we give praise to men for their wise decisions because God was helpless. He could do no more. And it was all up to us. But if it's God's grace that saves us, if he's the one who provided a saviour, who would be our substitute, and he lived for us, and he died for us, and he became our sin-bearer, if God makes uh, dead hearts live, if God saves us by his grace through faith that's not of ourselves, but is his gift to us, if God imputes to us the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ, if God keeps us by his power and brings us home, if salvation is all of the Lord, then we say what Paul says here, thanks be to God for your salvation. God saved you. Salvation is by grace alone. You were slaves of sin and you are now slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to God. He did this. He changed you. My life shall all be praised. You know the Heidelberg Catechism, the first section, guilt. The second section, grace. The final section, gratitude. My life shall all be praised and thanksgiving now because of what he did to me. That's the first thing. Paul gives thanks to God for their salvation, for the change in their lives. The second thing He's so grateful that they wholeheartedly obeyed the teaching that came to them. You wholeheartedly obeyed. You notice that phrase? You you did it. You did it by grace. You did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You did it under the preaching of of an earnest messenger. You did it because your parents prayed for you since they discovered you were a, a bump in mummy's womb. You were constrained by the love of God to respond to it. But you did it. You did it. What do we have here? Human responsibility. And all of us are facing a great responsibility tonight. What are we going to do with this message that God has brought us to hear? And we ought to say, well, if God is going to save me, he's going to save me. No, no. What about your heart? Are you wholeheartedly listening? Are you wholeheartedly obeying what God has said? Salvation is 100% the work of God. And salvation is 100% the work of man. 100% plus 100% equals 100%. You became obedient to the gospel as it was preached to you. The third thing I want to say to you is you have a new status now and uh, new resources. Amazing resources and new ambitions and longings, aren't you? You've become servants of righteousness. You have this master. No, don't do that. Go there. Do this for me. Um, and he tells us how we're to uh, work in the home and help our husbands and help our wives and be sweet children who obey them and be good teachers and be good taught children in school and, and change our lives by 
living godly and holy and loving and sweet, joyful, happy lives. You've been set free from sin. Verse 18, and you've become slaves to righteousness. We've been uh, observing the 60th anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camps. And and, uh, we've seen the changes. They were under a camp commandant. They were under camp guards. How terrible it was to be under those men. And then the Allies came in. And those that formerly were guards and commanders became themselves prisoners. And the men and women who were there in those huge camps were freed. They were free. They could go and come and they could make their way home. And What liberty they had. That's what God has done for us. He's delivered us from being servants of sin. And giving into our moods and desires and itches and achings and longings and frustrations and anger and fear. He's delivered us from that. And now we serve righteousness. and We serve God. Sin was a cruel enemy. Sin said to us, the only world there is is this world. Only what you see, what you feel and touch and that's all. That's the only world there is. That's all, and when you die, you're snuffed out. And that's what sin tells us. And then he took away the blindfold from our eyes, and we saw Jesus Christ. We saw the beauty of his life, the loveliness of his character, and his power, and his wonderful teaching, and his power over death. So that's reality. Not just what we see around us each day. The most liberating activity is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. But he won't call us slaves. He says, I won't call you slaves. I'll call you my friends. Because a friend loves his master. And a friend does whatever his master asks him to do. So I'm asking you tonight. You become a friend of Jesus tonight. You become a servant of Jesus tonight. You follow him. It's a, it's a decision that you make in your heart. As the Holy Spirit takes the word of God that you've been listening to and, and makes you long to be delivered from the bondage of sin and to be brought into the wonderful liberty of the children of God to know it for yourself. And that's why God has brought you here. That from now on, you serve him. You serve this Lord. You're a slave, a happy slave to righteousness Lord bless your word to us do us good by it deliver us from bondage to sin and pain and cruelty and selfishness and all the things that are so destructive help us not to hurt another person by anything we say or do or fail to do Strengthen us to live a new life by the activating power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Grant that in your mercy. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.